So we are going to continue our uh, journey through that uh, vision, that dream that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, today as a, as a foundation for preparing us to understand what Yohanan is seeing, the visions that he's seeing in the book of the Revelation. Father, we, uh, we ask you to show us your ways, Ruach HaKodesh, teach us your paths. The promise was that you will lead us into all the truth and show us things to come. And so, Lord, we ask you to lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation, and on you we wait all the day. So just as a foundation, again, the book of the Revelation, which God gave to Yeshua the Messiah. And Yeshua the Messiah, the unveiling of Yeshua the Messiah the unveiling of the reality and the truth of God's redemption plan. And he gave it through the angel to his servant, Yohanan, so that he could show his servants what must happen. And uh, Yohanan wrote down on a scroll as much as he saw, right? Isaiah 46, we, we reviewed this because we understand, and, and this is something that is criti- critically important. You know, we have this Greek mindset, right? That um, when God prophesies something, it gets fulfilled. It's, he said it, he does it. It's a very linear understanding of Scripture, But when God prophesies something, he sets up a a pattern, a model for something. It is much deeper than he said it, and then at some point it's fulfilled. This is a pattern, a reality that he speaks into existence, and he happens to share it with us. It is spoken outside of time. We are trying to interpret it within the framework of time, but God spoke it outside of time. And so for us to understand truly, we've got to figure out how to get in in God's dimension. And that can only happen by the Ruach, by the Holy Spirit. So if you're trying to interpret prophecy through your mind, through you know, research through this or through that without the Ruach HaKodesh. And I could tell you, how many times have I said it? Google last days, Google end times, Google book of the revelation. Literally, the last time I Googled the the phrase last days or end times, there were 21 million hits. And I guarantee you, With those 21 million hits, there are 21 million interpretations. He says, remember this and stand firm. He says, at the beginning, I announce the end. Proclaim in advance things not yet done, and I say that my plan will hold. I will do everything I please to do. Verse 13, I am bringing my justice nearer. It is not far away. This is what prophecy is about. Isaiah 46, read it, meditate on it. As I said over and over, don't believe anything I say. Be a Berean Jew. Hear what I have to say, and then search it out in the Scriptures yourself. He said, I am bringing my justice nearer. It is not far away. My salvation will not be delayed. I will place my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. All of prophecy, all of prophecy is about the redemption of Israel. What? Blessed are the reader and hearers of the words of this prophecy. This is the book of the Revelation, the only book in the Bible that says if you read it, hear it, and obey it, provided they obey the things written in it, for the time is near, you will be blessed. Obey. Do it. 
So Revelation isn't just a book of great visions so you can know what the future is about. It is an instruction manual to give you the way to see life and do life during the worst times. Okay? You can apply it to every time. Any time. Now, after last week's message, and after the last couple of times that I've talked about this and I've emphasized this, I literally had people, and I love you, and, and I'm not getting down on you, but I literally had people to come up to me and give me theories on what they thought about certain aspects of the, the dream. And not one gave me a perspective that had anything to do with Israel or Jerusalem. After I pounded it. And again, I'm not getting on your case because this is what everybody believes and how everybody interprets Scripture. They look at it from a Western Anglo-Saxon perspective. You cannot do it. Over and over, God points us to the land of Israel as the focal point of the last days and of redemptive prophecy. Everything worth redemption took place in the land and will take place in the land. From Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac that almost was to the sacrifice of Messiah First, before that, the yearning of, of the slaves of Egypt, they were pulled out to go into the promised land. The sacrifice of Messiah, the fall, the, the infilling of the Ruach HaKodesh upon all flesh, the fulfillment of all the spring feasts. And guess what? He's going to fulfill the fall feasts when he comes back. Where? Same place who fulfilled the spring feasts. Over and over, God associates the last days with the severe persecution and final restoration of national Israel. Period. Over and over, God gives us glimpses of the last day scenario, but always with the focus on His covenant people, the Jews and his holy city, Jerusalem. So, I, I don't know how to say it any stronger, but as we approach prophecy and look at it, see it through those lenses, that lens, and no other. And so, conclusion the interpretation of any prophecy cannot be understood without first fully grasping and building upon the patterns that were set in motion within the scriptural and historical context of the Jewish people. That is a long sentence. I'm going to read it again. The interpretation of any prophecy. Clear so far? Any cannot be understood, good, without first fully grasping and building upon the pattern that God set in motion, the scriptural pattern, the historical pattern, the context of the Jewish people. And so, getting back into where we were, now that we have that straight, the book of the Revelation. You cannot understand the book of the Revelation without first fully grasping the other prophetic books and specific prophecies. There are 400 verses in the book of Revelation, of the Revelation. How many allusions? to the Tanakh and specific prophecies within the Tanakh in 400 verses, over 800. 
over 800 allusions to the Tanakh. If you don't know the Tanakh, don't read the book of the Revelation, please. Because you will mess everybody up. First you and everybody else. Sorry, the Tanakh. Anybody know what the Tanakh is? The Tanakh is the Bible of Yeshua, the Bible of Jesus, the Bible of Shaul, Paul, the Bible of all the apostles, right? Torah, Nevi'im, Chetuvim. The first five books are the Torah, right? Nevi'im, the prophets, Chetuvim, the writings the poetry, and the other writings. <clears throat> so, the book of Daniel, we dived into this and, and uh, dove, sorry. Thank you, English teachers. Um, I, I have a, I'm hoping I'm getting a good reputation with God, but I probably don't have a very good reputation with my English teachers in the audience. <laughs> and I probably won't. Um, Daniel 2, thank you. Verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who unlocks mysteries, and he has revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the Acharit Hayamim, the latter days. So this, this crazy, crazed, maniacal king had a dream that shook him so deep that he said, I want y'all, all my sorcerers, all my wise people to tell me what the dream means. But first, I want you to tell me the dream. And they said, we knew you were crazy, but now we think you've lost it completely. And so he told his henchmen, they tried to, to get him to, to give them the dream, and he said, that's it, you're out. And he said, tear them limb from limb. However, Daniel said, what? Wait a minute. We know the giver of dreams, the master. And so Daniel comes before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says there is a God in heaven who unlocks the mysteries. But I share this scripture as we move into it, because, again, don't get confused. This dream is about which nation? the Jewish nation, which people, the Jewish people, and what primary city, location? Jerusalem. Okay. But this particular dream is about what will happen in the Acharit Hayamim, the latter days. Okay. And so he gives the interpretation in verse 37 through verse 45, <clears throat> and he talks about kingdoms. He said, remember, he gives this image. He said, you're the head of gold. And then he says, another kingdom, and a third kingdom, and a fourth kingdom. And then he says, finally, so sometime after the fourth kingdom, finally, he says, you saw feet and toes made partly of pottery clay and partly of iron. By the way, if you missed last week's message, please go back, because a lot of this won't make too much sense. Go back and watch it. There's also, all the scriptures are on a PDF format on our website. You can download it and, and look those scriptures up yourself. He said, finally, this is after the fourth kingdom, the finally, he says, you saw the feet and toes made partly of pottery clay and partly of iron. He said, it's a divided kingdom. And he said, they won't stick together, talking about the clay and the iron, any more than iron blends with clay. And so he said, in the days of those kings, that finally kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not pass into the hands of another people. It will break to pieces and consume all those kingdoms. So what did we find out? If you look historically, Babylon was the kingdom. It was the most powerful empire of the time. 
But more importantly, this Babylonian empire, it controlled an area known as the land of Israel, known now as the land of Israel. Right? They came in and they um, not only came in and conquered that whole area of the world, right? They took Israel. They didn't want to harm Israel until rebels started acting up. And so Nebuchadnezzar, being the maniac he was, said, go in, kill them all. Except save a few of the wise and the rich and bring them over here. And he destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. Killed tens, if not hundreds of thousands in the process. And you remember the next stage. In one night, Nebuchadnezzar lost kingdom. And the Medo-Persians, Cyrus, came in and destroyed the greatest kingdom around and took the territory and actually expanded it. That was the chest and arms of silver. But again, what part of the world did they control? The land of Israel. Then the third kingdom of bronze will come in and rule the whole world. And we know that Alexander the Great was not called Alexander the Great for nothing. He came in and expanded the territory even more. But most importantly, what territory did he hold? Okay. Starting to see a pattern here? All right. The Babylonians persecuted and destroyed Israel. What happened during the Persian rule? There was some, you know, good things that happened, but what, uh, what does the book of Esther tell us? The intent was to annihilate the Jewish people. What about the Greeks? Anybody know what happened during the Greek rule? Anybody celebrate Hanukkah? <laughs> Yeshua did. Right? Tens of thousands of Jewish people murdered. And then there's this fourth kingdom, right? And we know what that fourth kingdom is. It will be as strong as iron. Iron can break anything into pieces, pulverize it and crush it. So just as iron crushed anything, this kingdom will break the other kingdoms into pieces and crush them. And that word, break into pieces and, and crush them, literally is the Aramaic phrase, crushes and subdues. And we know that the Roman Empire came in and basically conquered the known world. Infiltrated it. And we know what happened in Israel during that early part of their rule, right? What happened? The Messiah came. And the Messiah was, was killed on the execution stake, the Roman execution stake. And Jerusalem was destroyed. And a million or more Jewish people were murdered. And in 150... By the year 150, there were very few Jews, if any, left in the land. The land was made desolate. And for 2,000 years, nearly, that land stayed desolate. So what unifies these kingdoms, these reigns, these dominions? They are all Gentile kingdoms. Each one of them has attempted to subdue and destroy the nation of Israel. Each one has been a vicious persecutor of the Jewish people. And we read this from E.L. Knox in the History of Western Civilization. When people talk about the fall of the Roman Empire, they usually envision some sort of event, a year. Remember, up to the 700s, even up to the 800s and later, there was still a Roman Empire. Loose Roman Empire. He says, this is a secular 
historian. All such ideas are fundamentally misleading because they oversimplify what the Roman Empire was. They overlook social, economic, in favor of strictly political developments, and the very notion of a fall implies that something was standing, and that this something was a cohesive entity. In fact, Rome was always a patchwork. Remember what that foot was. It had iron in it, but it also had some clay. A different way of considering matters to leave aside entirely the idea of a fall of the Roman Empire and to talk instead about the transition from the ancient world to the medieval world. Throughout this period and well beyond, there was something called the Roman Empire. Thinking in terms of the fall of the Roman Empire conceals the fact that these centuries were not about the ending of a civilization, but its transformation into something new. And so we know that our world today is a product of the Roman civilization. That is what informs Western civilization and even Eastern civilization, right? Russia had a czar. Czar is what in Russian? Caesar. Germany had a Kaiser. What is Kaiser in, in German? It's Caesar. And so finally, you saw the feet and toes made partly of pottery clay and partly of iron. This will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the firmness of iron, since you saw the iron mixed with clay from the ground. So these final kingdoms are the final kingdom. What, what is... What, what did Daniel tell Nebuchadnezzar that his dream was about. The latter days. So he gives us a history leading up to the most important part of this dream. And he talks a little bit about those kingdoms. He talks quite a bit about the, the, the iron, but then he goes into two full paragraphs, if you will, about this final kingdom. It'll be a mixed kingdom with two separate entities, iron and clay. Part of it will retain the iron from that fourth kingdom. You see that the body, it just goes from one kingdom to another. So, you know, each of the uh, kingdoms will inform the next regarding what? Yes. Regarding passing on, inheriting something, a hatred. Part of it will be a kingdom of clay, which comes out of the ground. These are iron, but now we have clay. Completely distinct from the prior four kingdoms. The fourth being part of the feet. There's iron. So who does the iron represent? Essentially the entirety of Western civilization. Remember... This, uh, this scripture says that this, and we'll get to it, this last entity will exist through posterity, through the end of time, as we know it. Every nation born out of the spread of Roman political and cultural influence, the iron will, will spread out on the feet, this last manifestation of whatever it is. <clears throat> Who does the clay represent? This is where people came and had all these theories. Stop it. Just stop it. You saw the iron mixed with clay. That means this is the, the you know, the complete Jewish Bible in, in translation. And it, it, I, love, I love this translation. It's my, trans, my favorite translation because it's very Hebraic. But there is no perfect translation. None. If you take the Aramaic words, this is what it says. You saw the iron mixed with clay. And if you look at some other translations, the, some of these other translations actually get very close to this, if not identical. It says, you saw the iron mixed with clay. They will occupy in future generations, but will never adhere to one another. 
So what will unify these last kingdoms? Same thing that unified the other ones. They're Gentile kingdoms. They, quote-unquote, both will attempt to subdue and destroy the nation of Israel, and, quote, both will be vicious persecutors of the Jewish people. If the past informs the pattern of the future. And that's why I say, don't look at it from a Greek mindset. Look at it from a pattern perspective. The third and final turning point of the transformation of the Roman Empire, this is E.L. Knox, a secular non-believer, says this. I wish to emphasize here is the Islamic conquest of the 7th and 8th centuries. When the Arabs conquered Egypt, the Near East, Israel, North Africa, and Spain, they completed the transformation of the ancient world to the medieval world. While there were still contacts between the East and West, they were sporadic at best. The ancient world centered in the Mediterranean. The medieval world was centered in Europe. The last mixed kingdom. It says the two will remain completely distinct kingdoms, if you will. The two will be part of the image that is unique in purpose. The two will be aligned even though they will remain distinct. They can't mix. The two will be the last of the kingdoms. The two will be destroyed by the other character of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The destruction of the final two kingdoms will also destroy the remnants of all the previous kingdoms, and I might say, the patterned purpose. Now, I'm telling you my assessment of this. Be a good Berean Jew. And remember, if it's in one place in the scripture, you can take anything out of context. But if it repeatedly gives you the same pattern over and over and over, you got to look at it. And so who is this, what is this last image, this last part of the dream? As you watched, a stone separated itself without any human hand and struck the statue on its feet. That last manifestation of whatever this image is, made of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces, which became like the chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the stone which had struck the statue grew into a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. As you watched, a stone separated itself without any human hand. Struck the statue on its feet. Broke them. Who is this stone? How did it separate itself, and from what did it separate itself? And it was made without any human hand. What does that mean? It's not something of this world. It's something divine, something supernatural, something beyond. I'll just do the first half of the sentence, and you can just complete the I love you. <laughs> and where did it hit? It hit on the feet. And it destroyed the feet, which then caused the entire image to collapse. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces. And there was no trace. No trace. None. Several verses later, he, he then gives the interpretation. He said, in the days of those kings, 
the final clay iron feet. The God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now, do you understand? We are talking about the last days. And that kingdom will not pass into the hands of another people. It will break to pieces and consume all those kingdoms. But it itself will stand forever. He says, like the stone you saw which, with, without, with which without human hands separated itself from what? Daryl what? The mountain separated itself from the mountain. yod heh is the God, El Shaddai, the God of the mountain. Without human hands, separated itself from the mountain and broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver and gold. The great God has revealed to the king what will come about in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is reliable. All right. <laughs> Woo! You know, it's funny. When I put it up there, it was stable. And I thought, I bet you it's going to come down in the middle of my message. Thank you, Lord. That was a prophecy. That's weird. Sorry. Amen. I don't know if God's telling us something, but it's okay. Don't worry about it. What is that word true? You know, the dream is true. Of course it's true. God interpreted it, right? It's true. What does it mean? That's the word yatsiv in Hebrew, or in Aramaic, I should say. And that word means it is fixed. It is secure. It is concrete. Not clay, not iron. It ain't going to move. And it is reliable. It's the word aman. We get the word, amen. So be it. It is trustworthy, faithful, sure. The dream is certain, concrete. It will come to pass. And its interpretation is absolutely faithful and trustworthy. And it's about what will become in the future. The stone. That second image in the dream, you've got the, the image, and then you've got this image of a stone, right? The stone separated itself from the mountain. <clears throat> the stone separated without human hands. It's not a natural stone in contrast with the image which is made up of human kingdoms. The purpose of the stone was twofold, according to the dream. Number one, to destroy the image. It struck at the final twin iron clay form. It destroyed not only the feet, but the entire image. Whatever unified that image was destroyed as well. And what unified that image, we've already gone through. Again, Yerushalayim-centered, Jewish-centered perspective. The image was destroyed, as I said, without leaving a trace. And the stone grew into a huge mountain that filled the entire earth and that will stand forever. It became the foundation for the eternal kingdom. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not pass into the hands of another people. How many times has Israel passed into the hands of another people? Do you see this? Do you see this? and it will stand forever. Revelation. We are talking about the book of the Revelation, right? Let's go to the back of the book. Don't you, don't you hate when people read the last chapter of a book? They know the end of the book. Yeah, not me. <laughs> I, it helps me to know where the book's going. No, I, I don't like it either, but we're going to read the back of the book. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no longer there. 
Also, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See, God's Shekhinah is with mankind and he will live with them. They will be his people and he himself, God with them, will be their God. Emmanuel. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning, crying or pain because the old order has passed away. Then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. The stone. Also, he said, write these words. Write. These words are what? True and trustworthy. The same exact two words as we saw in the book of Daniel. Same exact words. It is concrete and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the A and the Z, the Aleph and the Toph, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What does that, that stone do? It ends. It ends the reign of the image. End. To anyone who is thirsty, I myself will give water free of charge from the fountain of life. He who wins the victory will receive these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Yeshua is the stone. And he is coming back for that last great attempt to annihilate the Jewish people, to destroy the land of Israel that will be coming very soon, that is manifesting even now. And guess what? It couldn't happen until the Jews were back in the land. Guess what? You... And I are living in that generation. Today. And everything is aligning. Everything is aligning. So as I asked last week, since you were born... For such a time as this, what today, tomorrow, the next day, what is your part? What is our part in the fulfillment of God's prophecy? He doesn't tell us just to tell us. The book of the Revelation, do you want to be blessed through the book of the Revelation. I do. What does it mean? Obey it. Obey it. It's the instruction manual. We've got to absolutely yearn every day. God, how can I play a role in, in this plan of yours? What can I do today to gain that reputation with you? To fulfill the calling on my life today. Amen? Wow. Actually ended early. I can go on. I've got a, a, a bunch of slides from, from next week that I can start. Actually, you know what? I'm, I am. So, what other book did I say, don't take too much of a deep breath, what other book did I say um, was, again, one of the most important and one of the most quoted books in the book of the Revelation is the book of Ezekiel. Now, you can, you can interpret how you want to interpret what I just shared with you. What is that clay? Well, I seem to have suggested that it was the Islamic world. Right? Clay. Something that didn't exist when all these other kingdoms existed and came out of nowhere, out of the ground. 
clay, unlike any of the other. And it said they will be part of the same image, have the same purpose, the same intent in these last days, but they, they won't mix. They won't, they won't intermingle. And they don't. That was a new sentence. That, you didn't finish my sentence. Uh, do, do you hear me? There is no intermingling of, and, and I'm not talking about individual Muslims, I'm talking about a kingdom, a realm. First, spiritual. Then, ideological, political, economic, etc. All those things that stem as a result of the spiritual reality. Now, if, if my quote-unquote theory is correct, then something would point to that over and over in Scripture, and over and over, and also in the book of the Revelation. And so, starting next week, we're going to explore the book of the Revelation further by exploring the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was a prophet that was a contemporary of Daniel. <clears throat> Jeremiah um, was also a contemporary. He stayed in the land after the temple was destroyed. Ezekiel was captured about seven years uh, before Daniel. Ezekiel, unlike Daniel, was actually born into a priestly family. He was of the Levitical line. And he was trained as a priest, but he was never able to perform his duties. And he was captured just into the 6th century B.C. at age 25. The early chapters of the book of Ezekiel, chapters 1 through 7, show a heavenly vision, com his commission, and, and the destruction of Jerusalem. The middle chapters, 8 through 32, show multiple visions, but it was starting with chapter 33 that Ezekiel actually got the go-ahead to prophesy about the future of Israel and Jerusalem. And so next week we are going to start in that part of the book of Ezekiel. He was commanded by God to begin that, that process of declaring Israel's future. Chapter 35 and 36 talk about this, this entity called Edom, or Mount Seir. Chapter 37 is the Valley of Dry Bones. Chapter 38 and 39 is the War of Gog and Magog, and chapter 40 through 48 is the New Jerusalem. And if we look at that within our own time frame, we can see something progressing and an understanding of the unfolding of the last days. And so if we see similar things in Ezekiel and we see similar things in Jeremiah and we see similar things in Ezekiel, I mean, in Zechariah. And we see these things in the book of Revelation summarizing all of these other prophecies into one. Then I think we can understand what God is trying to tell us. Amen? We, uh, we can grab the kids out if you want. They're coming. Good. Amen. Thoughts, questions, comments? Is there any particular reason that it seems like most of the last day's prophecies all happened while the Jewish people were in Babylon? I, I think that's a great question. Um, so the, the, the first exodus happened in Egypt. But that's a pattern for what happens to the Jewish people over 
and over and over again. The first destruction was in Babylon. The first, if you will, uh, after, this, or I should say the second exodus. And, and when I say exodus, I don't mean um, exodus out of the land. I mean exodus out of foreign land back into the land. So Babylon, they were only there for 70 years. The temple was destroyed. They came back and rebuilt the temple, that same temple that was standing when Yeshua came. And so if you look at Scripture, even if you look at various verses and you find a pattern where the, the first verse and the last verse of a section that seems to be talking about the same thing actually are almost identical. The second and the second to last are almost identical. The third and the third to last, and there's always a middle one. It's called the chiastic structure. And that's a very Hebraic structure that's all throughout Scripture. That middle point is the whole purpose of that section of Scripture. The middle exodus was Babylon. That's the center point of the first exodus and the last exodus, which we are witnessing today. The Jews coming back. So that's the middle of this chiastic structure. That's, that's my understanding of what's going on, right? The next exodus was the Roman exodus, but that didn't take place for 2,000 years. We're in it now. Remember, to God, a day is as 1,000 years. So although there was a shorter time between the first exodus and the second exodus, then the second exodus to the final exodus. It's still a chiastic structure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you want to understand the future, look at the patterns of the past. Not the patterns of history without God's understanding and the scripture. The patterns that God uses through scripture. Nothing new. And there's nothing new with our enemy. Our war is not, we don't, you know, our enemy doesn't have a social security number. Right? Our war is not with flesh and blood. And when I bring up, and I will bring up again and again, the idea of the Muslim, the spirituality and the ideology of the Muslim nation, the Muslim people, don't get me wrong. God loves the cousins of Israel. God loves Ishmael and Esau. God loves them. And I love a Muslim person. Right? I'm talking about the ideology. Guess what? Y'all are part of the Roman Empire. <laughs> Y'all Gentiles, you're part of the Roman Empire. And that's why in the book of the Revelation, he says, come out of them, my children. Come out of her, my children. Talking about who? The whore of Babylon. God said it, not me. The prostitute of Babylon, he said, come out of her, my children. Who is that? That's the iron. The iron. I just gave away at least two weeks worth of the book of the Revelation. Right there. Yes, ma'am. Is today's uh, topic occurring? Today, actually, first group? Yes. You can show me in the scripture, I'll believe it. Yeah. It's a, uh, we're, this season is an amazing season. It's an amazing season. But it, it's going to prepare us 
for the fall feasts, which is yet to come. What's the first of the fall feasts? Now you got me going. What's the first of the fall feast? Yom Truah. The day of trumpets. With a shout, the, the voice of an angel and the blowing of the final shofar, he will come. Right? And then comes Yom Kippur, where sin is judged and removed from the nation. And then the marriage feast of the Lamb, Sukkot. Amen? All right. Everybody stand and join me with the ironic blessing. Reach across the aisles. Love on people. Come on. What about Ragnarok? Ragnarok. What about Ragnarok? Isn't that before God? Or Jesus? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, teach us, show us, reveal to us your word. But more importantly, Lord, reveal to us day in and day out what our part is in this. That it's not just to sit on the sidelines and watch it all happen, Lord. We are part of this game, Lord. We are part of this. I shouldn't have used the word game. It's no game. It's life and death, physical and eternal. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Ya e Adonai panavilecha vichuneka Yesaharonai panavilecha veyasem lecha shalom Shabbat shalom